Okay, well, um, if you will, turn with me to Psalm 132. That'll be the first psalm, first passage we'll look at this evening. Excuse me, I just had a, uh, well, I'm not going to say what it was, but um, (laughs) 2 Samuel 7, that's where we'll be first. We'll look at Psalm 132 after that. 2 Samuel 7 uh, will be our first text. And uh, of course, while you're uh, turning there, just a reminder, some of the things that we've been looking at, uh, this this larger study, this look at how to read the Bible. We're beginning by working through the covenants, because as I said in the beginning, if we understand how the covenants work, that's going to help us understand the storyline of Scripture. There's a story, There's there's a plan of salvation that God's been working out ever since the world began and even before the world began, and the covenants are essentially the plot line of that story. It's the, the main points of the story. So we, we understand those, those covenants and how they are progressively unfolding. It can help us to know where we are in the Word of God, which is a, a key thing when we get to uh, the New Covenant and we think about the relationship between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. It's, it's always going to be important to understand whenever we're reading any passage of Scripture where we are in that, in that storyline. Uh, that's going to help us to a little bit better um, uh, understand the differences between the law and the gospel and how to apply uh, e- even the Old Testament, not just the law, but the Old Testament as, as a whole. Um, so we've, we've looked at the creation covenant and, and the Noahic covenant closely related um, to it. We looked at the Abrahamic Covenant, and then we spent a couple of weeks on the Mosaic Covenant. I was thinking about um, doing, after the Mosaic Covenant, just sort of um, going through some of the common issues and questions surrounding the Mosaic Covenant, but I, I think I'm going to hold off on that. I'm going to keep going through. We're going to go through the Davidic Covenant tonight, and then we'll make our way through the New Covenant, and then once we kind of go through all of that, we'll, we'll have... Uh, a session or two uh, dealing with the, the relationship, especially between the New Covenant and, and prior covenant. Uh, but tonight, as I said, we're looking at the, the excuse me, the Davidic Covenant um, specifically. And um, I want to just kind of start by setting the scene, setting the, the biblical context for the introduction of the uh, Davidic Covenant. Of course, where the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant uh, ends up, you, you have the, the people of Israel going into the land of Canaan. They mostly take over the land, but of course they, they do not fully obey the Lord and they do not completely destroy all of the nations, which leads us into the book of Judges where as a result of their disobedience, these these pagan nations are basically going to be a, a, a continual thorn in their side. They're going to be a stumbling block. They're going to continue to uh, both lead Israel into rebellion against the Lord, and those nations, too, are, are going to be 
uh, means by which God brings the covenant curses and judgments uh, against Israel. So we come into the, the book of Judges, and, and of course Judges describes that period of time between the making of the Mosaic Covenant and the beginning of the monarchy, uh, beginning in, in 1 Samuel. And the writer of Judges, uh, of course, is communicating to us throughout the narrative this constant cycle that Israel goes through during this period. Um, if you understand this cycle, you understand basically every single story that's taking place uh, throughout the book of Judges. But basically the pattern is that you've got the people who in sin, they, uh, they rebel against the Lord, <clears throat> they break the covenant, and then the Lord disciplines them. Uh, he, he brings the curses of the covenant upon them. He, he allows aggression against Israel from their, their enemies. Again, just as he said would happen in the covenant. Um, so, so then Israel comes under this, this judgment. They're oppressed by nations. And, and then what do we see happening? We see them calling out. They, they saw that we see them going through this period of repentance. Um, you know, it's, it's much like when they're in slavery in Egypt and they're crying out to the Lord. Well, now they, they cry out to the Lord, they're humbled, and then the Lord comes and, and He saves them. But, but He does this by raising up a, a hero. He, he raises up a deliverer or, or a judge. And uh, this, whoever this particular individual is, the judge rescues the people from their enemies, and then He rules over them for a period of time. But uh, when the judge died, of course, the people... Uh, returned to their former ways. And uh, this whole cycle is described for us. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Judges chapter 2. And uh, I just want to read a, a couple of uh, verses here. Uh, well, I guess a couple would be two, but I'm going to read more than, more than two. But the first, Judges chapter 2 and uh, verse 14, that we read there, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. So we, just, we see there that when, when Israel rebels against God, there's this giving over to, to their enemies. It kind of reminds you of you know, Romans chapter 1, the judgment of God uh, against men for their idolatry, the giving them over uh, to the bondage of sin. And here he's giving them over to the nations that they wanted to be like. Um, so, so there's this, this judgment um, that, that comes upon uh, Israel. And then um, in verse 16 to 19, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to, bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But... Whenever the judge died, they turned back 
and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods. And again, note that as well. More corrupt than their fathers. It gets worse and worse as each generation passes by. They go after other gods. They serve them and bow down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So this, this cycle continues throughout the book and it gets worse and worse until finally you come to the end of, of the book of Judges, Judges 19 to 21, and you've got that horrible story of um, the Levite and his concubine who's raped and killed and then he cuts her into pieces and sends it throughout Israel and it's just a disaster. And the whole way that that story is framed and narrated is to intentionally remind you of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. So that by the time you get to the end of the narrative, you realize that Israel has descended so deeply into sin, they have become Sodom and Gomorrah part two. Which, of course, is one of the reasons why the prophets later, like Isaiah, when, he, when he's addressing the people of Judah and Israel. What, what does he say to them in, in Isaiah 1? Right? Hear, O rulers of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? He's, he's calling the people Sodom and Gomorrah because of what they have descended into. And so this is this constant cycle that occurs throughout the book of Judges. But at the end of the book of Judges, the author makes a comment. Uh, This is at the very end in verse 25 of uh, chapter 21. He says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there's at least two things that are are meant by this. One is just a a very obvious fact that the people were living wickedly. right? When they do what is right in their own eyes, they have no guidance. They have no direction. It's just as if they're they're making it up as they go along. And everything they're making up is just worse and worse and worse. It's just sin. They're they're living in sin. But also, um, from the perspective of the early days of the monarchy, so you think like when King David ruled especially, which is probably the time when the book of Judges was written. Traditionally, it's said to have been written by, by Samuel. Um, so if you're, if you're thinking in the context of the early days of, of the monarchy, then you've got this righteous king, David, who is, who is now ruling. Um, uh, from that perspective, the, the lack of a righteous king was a contributing factor to the nation's sinfulness. So the king, per Deuteronomy 17, is supposed to be a king who rules according to the law and upholds its statutes. And what what the end of the uh, the book of Judges is saying is, in essence, there was no king to do that. There was no one. There was no king upholding the law of God in Israel. And so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And of course, if you read the narrative from Judges into 1 Samuel, where Israel is chastised for rejecting God as their king, 
and demanding a king who's like the other nations. That's their, their key problem there, is they're wanting to become still like the nations. If you read the narrative from Judges and into to 1 Samuel, the Bible, again, per Deuteronomy 17, is affirming two things. One, that God Himself is a sufficient king, according to the law, but also, two, that an earthly king, of course, is permissible and even beneficial insofar as that king rules according to the law. So that's, that's sort of the flow of judges into First and Second Samuel that leads us into the, um, the, the creation or implementation of the monarchy. Now, fast forward a bit to 2 Samuel 7, where the covenant with David is made. And of course, a lot has happened in Israel uh, up to this point. Uh, so again, the, the monarchy has been established, which again is not a bad thing. This was something that was permitted from Deuteronomy 17. But of course, the issue was how the Israelites asked. Right? That, that was what, what they were really desiring was not so much a king who ruled in accordance with the law, but a king who would just be sort of a protector, right? some, um, some glorious, strong figure, uh, the, the mightiest of the people in the land. And of course, that's one of the reasons why they wanted Saul, right? He, he, was, he was huge, he was beautiful, right? I mean, this guy looks like, like a born leader. Uh, but, but we saw how that, that turns out, right? Saul is not faithful to the Lord. He does not uphold the word of God. He does not rule according to the law of God. And it brings disaster and judgment. And the Lord takes the kingdom away from him. So Israel has, um, of course, under Saul, continued in their unfaithfulness to the Lord. And therefore, um, there's these repeated battles between Israel and the Philistines, and the Lord, again, gives Israel into the hands of their enemies, in this case, the Philistines. And He eventually allows the Philistines to take the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, by allowing them to take the Ark of the Covenant, which represented His presence among His people, His his blessing, the, the fact that He was dwelling in the midst of His people, when that ark is taken by the Philistines, it's like a, a visible picture that God is not in their midst. That, that they're under judgment. Right? It, it's the very same thing that, that happens later in, uh, in Judah's history when they're exiled, Jerusalem is destroyed along with the temple. The temple is gone, which means now God is gone. They're under the curse. right? So, so he allows the Philistines to defeat them and to take uh, the covenant. But then when we get to 2 Samuel 6, of course by this point David has been raised up. He is a faithful king. He goes to war with the Philistines and he defeats the Philistines, and in 2 Samuel 6, we see the ark being returned to, uh, to, to Jerusalem. 
And, uh, and there's celebration, there's singing, there's dancing, right? It's a monumental occasion because now the Lord is returning to his people uh, by, the, uh, by the works of the king. Now this leads us to 2 Samuel 7 and the making of the covenant with, uh, with David. And uh, in the immediate context, basically what's going on, of course, David, now he's living in this nice, plush palace. He's looking at how beautiful and well-built his, his house is, and, and he sees a problem, right? He's, he's living in this great house, and, and, and here the Ark of the Covenant is housed in a tent, right? So, so he, he wants to make he wants to make a great house, a great temple to, to house the, the Ark of the Covenant. And, of course, when he brings this up to the prophet Nathan, Nathan says, yeah, go, go about, do it, that'll be great. And then the Lord sends, sends word to David uh, through Nathan um, that he's not uh, to do this. God responds by saying to David, he does not need a house, he has never needed a house, that the ark has always been in a tent, and it moves wherever he wants it uh, to move. Um, but then, it, after he says that he doesn't need a house, you know, someone else, you know, one of his sons will, will build him a house, um, he makes this covenant. He makes these promises uh, to David. And, and there's, of course, there's a play on, on words. Uh, on words. Um, David wants to build the Lord a house, and the Lord says, no, I'm going to build you right, a house. Right? So, so he makes a covenant with David. And, uh, and this is not a covenant that is dependent on David for its fulfillment. But it solely consists of promises that God makes to David and is therefore dependent on God alone for its fulfillment. Again, uh, much like the Noahic covenant, much like the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant. These are. This is a covenant where God is saying what He's going to do for David. And uh, let's let's look at this this covenant here, beginning in verse eight. You can you can divide um, this section here, but basically into to two sections. You've got in verse eight down to about the middle part of verse eleven. You've got promises that are to be realized in David's own lifetime. And then from uh, the, the end of verse 11 down to about verse 16, you've got promises that are to be realized after David's death. Um, so if you look at um, verse 9, um, the second part of verse 9, uh, the Lord says that he will make David's name great. I, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And of course, as you think about that promise, what, what does it remind you of? I mean, it reminds you of, of the promise that, that he made to Abraham. That's the same thing that he said to Abraham, right? I will make your name great. And I think that's going to be key. I want you to keep that in mind, especially as we get to Psalm 72, and we see all of these different covenants being tied together and, and fulfilled uh, through the Davidic king. But, but again, he says the same thing. To David here, I will make your name great. Uh, then in, in verse 10, we find that um, there's a promise that there's going to be security for the people of Israel uh, from the nations. 
I will appoint a place for My people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. And of course, this, this happens in David's life. We read at the end of 2 Samuel that he had rest from all of his enemies, which means rest for all of, of the people of Israel. Now, of course, things take a, uh, a turn pretty quickly after, after his, his reign, but this is one of those sort of immediate promises here that there's going to be uh, rest and security for the people of Israel. Uh, and then also in verse 11, we see that David himself is going to have rest from his enemies. And again, this is, uh, this is what is stated at the end of 2 Samuel. Uh, but then in the second part, we have promises that are to be realized after David's death. And, and there are several things that we see here. Uh, one thing in um, verse 11, or the second part of verse 11 is that the Lord says that He's going to make David a house, right? And, and, and there, it's not talking about a physical house. Here, it's talking about a, a, a dynasty, right? Um, he, he's going he's gonna to make his offspring, well, again, we can, we can just think about the, the Abrahamic promises, right? They're going to be numerous, right? They're, they're going to multiply. They're going to fill the earth. He's going to expand David's kingdom. He's going to expand his house, in verse 12, there's a, um, there's a promise about a promised offspring who will have an established kingdom. Um, and, and then next week we see also that this offspring will build God a house. And, um, you know, there, there's multiple fulfillments of, of this. There's a, there's a um, sort of literal earthly sense in which Solomon literally builds. He's the one who builds the... Um, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, but of course, ultimately, this is, this is Jesus who's building the, the living temple of the Lord that's made of, of living stones of, of people, right? Um, uh, so so this, this offspring of David is going to build this, this house for God. Um, God's relationship uh, to the king is described as a father-son relationship. I will be to him a father, he will be to me uh, a son. That's also key language there. That, 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 that describes and, and is the foundation for that messianic title of the Son of God. Uh, this is something that we see in Psalm 2, for example. Psalm 2 being a, another psalm of David where he's speaking about the Lord's anointed being established on the throne, even though the, the nations are plotting against him. And, and, and what, what do we, we, we read there? You know, the, the Lord says to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And, and that language of begotten there is, is not like I gave birth to you, right? It's, it's, it's language of enthronement. I've, I've established you. I've I've created you, if you will, to, to use a creation language, as king. It, it's stated in the context of the Lord establishing His king on the throne. And so again, that's one of the reasons why, um, I can't remember when we looked at this, this passage, maybe a few weeks ago, but it was, maybe, maybe it was last week, from Romans chapter 1, where Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And, you know, sometimes people are like, well, I thought he was always the son of God, right? Because we're, we're reading it um, as a statement of his deity, um, which that is also the case. But we also have to understand that son of God is a messianic title that's rooted in this covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and then also in, in Psalm 2. And so when Paul says that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God at his resurrection, it's, it's the moment at which God says, you are my Son, today I've begotten you. You are my Son. You're being enthroned at this moment. He, he raises him from the dead. He ascends on high and he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on, on high as the, the author of Hebrews puts it. Right? So anyways, this, this father-son relationship is something that, that the Lord promises is going to happen with one of David's offspring. Um, also, we, we see here this, this statement about um, God disciplining David's offspring when he sins. And of course, this, this has to do with those sort of multiple um, little fulfillments, if you will, or, or to use sort of the more theological language, the typological fulfillments, um, as, as David has uh, more descendants, some of whom will, will, be, will bring about partial fulfillments of, of this. I'm thinking in particular of Solomon here. Those children will not bring about the ultimate fulfillment until the Lord Jesus himself comes. And so David will have sons who when they sin, they will be disciplined but the Lord makes the promise also that his love or his steadfast love, his, his covenant faithfulness um, to David's offspring will never depart. So even though his children sin, God is not going to revoke his promises and he's not going to revoke the kingdom as he did with Saul. It is going to stay in David's house. And then as a result of this, as a result of God's promises, David's throne and kingdom, it says in verse 16, will be established forever. Now these, these latter promises, of course, as I said a moment ago, have some partial or typological fulfillments, and particularly in a king like Solomon who builds the house of, of the Lord um, who rules, at least for a period of time, according to uh, wisdom uh, of the Lord, um, who has relative peace in the kingdom until he departs from the Lord. But again, it is only with the coming of Christ that we will find the complete fulfillment. It's important to look at other places, I think, as well in the Old Testament where this covenant is described, um, because um, in other places we also find reflections on 2 Samuel 7 and interpretations of 2 Samuel 7 that should guide our own understanding of the covenant and its fulfillment. So just, you know, as a good rule of thumb, um, if we can find other places of Scripture that speak to another place of Scripture, right? we, we want to go there to find that sort of authoritative interpretation 
And uh, we find many places throughout the rest of the Old Testament where um, there are reflections on 2 Samuel 7 and interpretations of that, that covenant. And I, and I want to look at a few of these to get a better grasp on really some of the, the full implications of what the Lord is doing with David. So, so look with me um, at Psalm 132. Let's uh, uh, turn to Psalm 132. Psalm 132 is titled A Song of Ascent. These were were likely all psalms that were written during the exile. So at this point, there is no throne of David, right? So just keep that in mind for, for some context here. But if we look at um, Psalm 132, there is basically an, an exposition of 2 Samuel 7 and, and the Davidic covenant. And in verses 1 to 5, the psalmist here is recounting David's desire to honor the Lord by building a beautiful house for the ark, a temple. And he wants God to remember the promises that that he made to David. So you can see there how it begins. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. The psalmist is appealing to the heart of the Lord. Remember Remember your servant. Remember how he, how he loved you. And this is going to lead him to appeal to the Lord to restore them, to, to bring them back to Zion, and, and for him to keep the promises that he made uh, to David. I, I think it's also instructive for us, you know, when we're lifting up petitions to the Lord to to root those petitions and promises that he's made. That's the model uh, that the psalmist is providing for us here. He, he, he wants the kingdom restored. And, and this is something that the Lord said would, would happen, that, that David's throne would be established forever, and yet presently it's not. And, and so he's appealing to the Lord, he's thinking about the Davidic covenant, and he's appealing to the Lord to remember these promises. Then in verses 6 um, and 7, the people south and north of Jerusalem um, are described as, as hearing of the celebration of the ark coming to Jerusalem. It says, Behold, we, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Right Again, again it, it's, it's reminding us of that, that occasion when in 2 Samuel 6, the Lord, or David, was bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And there was celebration and dancing and singing. And so, you know, the psalmist here is is talking about north and and south of Jerusalem and saying, the people heard of it. He's just sort of recounting that that, that historical past. And then in verses 8 to 10, the psalmist calls on the Lord to return to His temple for the sake of David. He says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. 
Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Right? Restore the kingdom. Restore the throne. Come to Jerusalem. And then in verses 11 to 12, the psalmist here recounts the promise that was made to David. And I want you to notice that there is an understanding here that many sons will come from David, but it will be one of them that sits on his throne forever. And I think what makes, uh, uh, and, and, and excuse me, and, and notice also here that what makes one of the sons worthy to sit on the throne forever is that he keeps God's covenant and his testimonies. So, so look with me in verse 11 and 12. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And, and here it is. One of the sons of your body. Right There's plural there. There's going to be a plurality of sons, but one of them I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Right, so there is, there is one, an understanding that there will be many sons. When this promise was made in 2 Samuel 7, there would be many sons. But also, the, the requirement, if you will, um, for one of the sons to be established forever is that he fulfills the covenant. He fulfills the Mosaic law. He keeps it. He upholds God's righteousness. In other words, the son that will rule forever will be a king who is obedient to the law of God. In fact, he will be the fulfillment of the covenant of the law of God. He, he embodies this in his own life. Now, look with me also um, to Psalm, uh, Psalm 89. Uh, Psalm 89. And uh, in this psalm, the psalmist, Ethan, is remembering the Davidic covenant. But he's, in essence, uh, struggling to reconcile the promises made to David with the fact that Jerusalem has been destroyed. This is the, the context of Psalm 89. It's basically a lament. Because it appears as if God has cast away His promises. He's determined not to keep His covenant. But I want you to notice first how uh, Ethan describes the covenant, particularly beginning in verses 27 uh, to 37. So look with me first at verses 27 to 28. It says there, um, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Right? And so, so here the Lord promises a great name to David, 
and His covenant will be established forever. Right? He's going to be exalted over all the kings of the earth. Um, and, and just you know, as a side note, notice there too the language of, uh, of firstborn. I will make him the firstborn and the parallel line describes what, what that means. It means that he's going to be the highest of the kings of the earth. It, it makes me think of the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They, they use the language of firstborn to talk about you know, first you know, created thing, but that's not how Paul uses the language. It's ta- it talks about supremacy. And that's the case here. Um, Verse 29 says, I will establish His offspring forever and His throne as the days of the heavens. His his offspring and and throne, just as 2 Samuel 7 says, will be established forever. The line of David will never cease. And um, this is particularly important as we think uh, especially of the, the eternal nature of Christ. He's not dead. He lives forever, ruling from the throne. The line of David never comes to an end because the one who occupies the throne himself has no end. Now, verses uh, 30 to 32 says, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And so we see here that there is a requirement for his offspring to obey the law of God. Right? So the one who the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant will also be the one who lives under the law of God and fulfills the law of God. Then in verses 33-37, to notice there it says, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And so here the Lord promises that even if David's sons transgress His law, which they will do, God will still keep His promises. God will fulfill the covenant. He will not break His promises, which which tells you that at some point, one of David's descendants will fulfill the law. One of his descendants will not be guilty of the same sins that David's other sons are guilty of that warrant punishment. One of his sons will be guiltless, will be one who carries out and fulfills the law perfectly. Now, the rest of the psalm uh, we, we see is basically the psalmist lamenting 
over the destruction of Jerusalem and the throne of David and, and trying to basically work through how this promise that God has made can possibly be fulfilled when the throne is gone. And, and so, you, I mean, you can see there in verse 38, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. That, that is the, the offspring of David. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. Right, And again, as you you go further on in the psalm, you find out that the reason why is because judgment has come and there's no more throne. So, so again, it's, it's one of those issues where you, you think back to, to Abraham and this promise is made to Abraham, you're going to have offspring and, and, and they're going to they're multiply on, on the earth. Your, your, your offspring are going to be more numerous than the stars of heaven and the, the sand, sand on the ground. And, and yet, Abraham's wife can't have children. <laughs> so how is that going to work? And, and, I mean, we see in, in Abraham's life, him trying to sort of believe in those promises, but bring them about, bring them about in a way that, that he thinks will, will work. It's kind of similar here in Psalm 89. There is a clear promise given to David. Your throne will last forever. And the psalmist is looking around and he sees no throne. How will this be fulfilled? Right? So it leads him to, to lament. But again, you see here there's an exposition of the covenant. And we see all of these different aspects of, of what is to be fulfilled. David's name will be great, and he will have an offspring who fulfills um, the, the obligations of, of the covenant and whose throne lasts forever. And so, so far, what we've seen in these two psalms is God is, is going to establish David's throne. He's going to do this through one of David's offspring, but of course there's a requirement for the offspring. The offspring must fulfill the law of God, and if he does not, God will punish him. But despite the fact that David will have sons who break the law, God will remain true to his promises, and one will come who fulfills the law, and his throne will be established forever. Now, uh, this leads us to Psalm 72. So if you'll turn with me there, Psalm 72. And uh, Psalm 72 was either written by Solomon or for Solomon. And I, I tend to think it's the latter um, just because it, it, um, it ends immediately by saying that the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And the way that that, that preposition um, it, it could be two or four. So I, I tend to think the latter, but, but either way, it's, it's fine. Um, but basically, the, the psalm is about the Davidic son. It, it's, a, it's about who, who the Messiah is going to be. It's about the Davidic king. And, and it's a prayer for God to fulfill his promises to the king and through the king. 
to fulfill all of his promises that he's made uh, through the king. But what I want you to see, especially here in this psalm, is how David interprets the promises of the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel as, as he's reflecting on the promises that God has given to him. He's interpreting the covenant as bringing about the fulfillment of all prior covenants. Let me say that again. As this psalm unfolds, which again, I think is written by David or Solomon, but I think it's David. As he's reflecting on what the Messiah, what the King is to be, what he is to accomplish, what, what he's petitioning the Lord to make the King do, he brings about the fulfillment of every prior covenant. To put it another way, when God keeps His promises to David and establishes His throne through one of His offspring, the covenant of creation, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and the, Moaic, the, excuse me, the Mosaic covenant, all of them will be fulfilled by David's son, the king. And you can see this throughout the psalm in the language that is used about the king. So beginning in verses 1 and 2, let's read that together. It says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. David prays that the king will have God's Justice. And this is the word, the same word that is used for the case laws in the Mosaic Covenant, the, the Mishpatim. And you'll remember that the case laws in the Mosaic Covenant, they're not exhaustive, but they are God's rulings on various cases that could arise in the land. And sometimes, like we saw in the case of Solomon and, uh, and the two prostitutes that come before him with a particular case of their own, sometimes cases may arise that, of course, aren't directly addressed in the law. But the king, in his wisdom, must still make judgments in accordance with the righteousness and the wisdom of the law of God. And that's what David is speaking of here. The king is to be a king who is a perfect reflection of God himself. He possesses the righteousness of God himself. And as such, when he rules, he rules as if God himself were ruling or his rule brings about the rule of God uh, on earth. Moreover, uh, the rule of the king brings about the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant on the land. And really, as, as we'll see uh, in a moment, it, it brings about blessings to the whole earth, not just the particular territory of, of Israel. So if you look at me at verse 3, 
verse 3 speaks of the mountains bearing prosperity. Of course, which reminds you of the covenant blessings where the fruit of the ground, the fruit of the land is blessed. And if the mountains are some of the most difficult areas, the most difficult terrain to uh, produce crops and and, and, and wheat and grain and food and, and all of these things is basically a, you know, another way of saying like even the most difficult terrain is going to bear prosperity. Um, moreover, the covenant blessings that are promised, uh, or, or excuse me, the covenant blessings um, from the Mosaic Law that promise deliverance from enemies is also found here. Uh, when the king reigns. If you notice in, in verse 4, it says at the end that the, the oppressors, another word for enemies, the oppressors will be crushed. Again, you think about the, the blessings of, of the law. If, if enemies come against the land, God's going to send them, send, send, scatter them in you know, a hundred different directions. And, and that's basically what's going on. All of the, the enemies are, are crushed. In verse 5, we find that the Davidic king will rule forever. Notice there, it says, May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. As long as the sun endures. That's another way of saying forever. now there may be there may come a day, right, when when literally, you know, I don't know, the sun may literally uh, fade away as the light of the Lord Himself is 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 the light uh, to the nations. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be a literal um, reality uh, or or not. But the point here is that in essence, as the world is, the sun endures forever, and so also will it be the case for the King. May. May his fame you know, endure forever. May they fear you while the sun endures. So again, the, the Davidic king, he's going to rule forever. Uh, then I want you to skip down with me to verse 8. And uh, here we see the creation covenant being fulfilled and the king basically accomplishing what Adam failed to do. So notice what verse 8 says. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But this is, this is, um, these are subtle allusions to Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 being the, the place where God gives dominion to man to, to subdue the earth. And then in Genesis 2, you've, you've got the reference to the river, right? It's the, the Euphrates. It's... Uh, um, um, you know, one of the one of the major rivers of the, the ancient Near East, and 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 here you've got that that reference to this major river and to the whole uh, or to the to dominion. Um, but but notice also that the king's dominion is not confined just to the territory of Israel, as outlined in the law. It expands. It covers the world. Which again is the the original intention of the creation mandate. 
that, that all things would be subdued. And under the rule of this king, that covenant is fulfilled. Then if you look with me at verses um, 10 to 11, we see the nations coming to him and bowing down to him. Verse 10 and 11 says, May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And it's interesting. I don't know if we should press this too far, but the language of bowing down here is the same language that's used throughout the Old Testament for worship. When you worship the Lord, you you bow down to him is the, the particular word that, that's used there. So, I mean, there, there could even be, you know, hints here of this particular king receiving not just tribute, but worship uh, from, from the nations. But skip down further with me to verse 17, and let's look at what it says there. It says, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun." May people be blessed in Him. All nations call Him blessed. Right? And this verse utilizes the language of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again, verse 17, may people be blessed in Him. All nations call Him blessed. The Davidic king will, of course, be a descendant of Abraham. That's an obvious one. He's he's part of the, the physical descent of Abraham. And as David prays for the king to be blessed, he prays that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant would also be fulfilled in him. And so what we see throughout the psalm is that David does not view the covenant that is made with him as a a sort of standalone covenant that's detached from anything that came before. Now basically, the, the, the Davidic covenant is a further progression of what has come before. It's a further development. It's a covenant that provides even more clarity as to how the covenants which came before and the promises that God made before are ultimately going to be fulfilled. David sees his promised offspring who will rule forever as the one who brings about the fulfillment of all the covenants. And of course, that's what we see when we come to Christ. Right? He, he is the one who brings in fulfillment all of those covenants that, that come before. He brings about the fulfillment of the creation covenant. He brings about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Right? All the nations are blessed in Him. He, he submits Himself to the Mosaic law. He fulfills all of its obligations. He is the promised offspring of 
David and the one who has already been seated on the throne, but who will rule forever, not only over heaven, but even over earth. And all the nations will give tribute uh, to him. And so again, we we see all of these things sort of coming to a a climax in Jesus, uh, who is not only the fulfillment of that, that new covenant, but the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, which again, uh, David sees as, as bringing about the fulfillment of, of all of them. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there and um, see if you guys have any questions or things that you wanted to discuss further. And, uh, and if not, we'll, we'll close in prayer.